On this special episode of the ASC podcast with John Gailey, we attend the May 2021 New Jersey ASC Association's virtual conference and visit with Jeffrey Shanton to discuss New Jersey ASC issues and host a roundtable discussion with speakers at the conference. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies have an edge. HS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement program, run their meetings, develop educational programs, and always be prepared for surveys. For more information or to schedule a consultation, visit our website at ah-strategies.com, email us at info at ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. Welcome to episode 132 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for June 3rd, 2021, recording from our studios in Spenceport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So this is very exciting. It's uh, Mm -hmm. our first uh, actual virtual conference podcast that we've done uh, since the pandemic here. And we had the honor of of attending virtually the Spring New Jersey Association of Amatory Surgery Centers conference on May 12th, 2021. Mm And you were the keynote speaker for that. I did. I did a presentation. It was a lot of fun. You you heard it because you, you had to put up with me <laughs> telling you what I was going to talk about. But Reflections on 30 Years in the Trenches. I love the title because mm-hmm. <laughs> it does feel like it was in the trenches. <laughs> and it seemed to have gone over very well. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, that topic in uh, one of our uh, uh, upcoming episodes. Uh, but the purpose of this episode is to provide New Jersey Association uh, members, well, in any center in New Jersey, mm-hmm. information about what's going on in the state. And uh, and there was a nice roundtable discussion from the, the speakers the there mm-hmm. on various topics. So, uh, And then I also did a breakout session on keeping current while keeping sane, tips t- for keeping up with the rapid changes in the ASC management. Uh, not sure who created these titles. They don't sound like titles <laughs> I would have created. but. I I don't know. It makes it sound pretty interesting. <laughs> it was. It was fun. It was fun. Um, and as uh, you'll hear when we talk to Jeff Shanton here, uh, they do hope to be live soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be great. It seems like we're starting to get back to normal finally um, mm-hmm. with uh, these conferences, which I'm really looking forward to. And they're one of the largest ASC state associations, right? The third largest, the I third believe. third largest, I believe, at this or point. Close, Absolutely. Yep. You know, what was interesting too, Sue, is that uh, it's interesting to see how advanced these virtual conferences mm-hmm. are are getting. You know, even, of course, you and I have been hosting various uh, virtual conferences for mm-hmm. uh, through the ASC podcast, but yeah. some of these state associations in New Jersey is really at the forefront of this, have put together quite complex uh, platforms for doing mm-hmm. this. The way the uh, 
they set this up is that there's a web page that you go to, which is a picture of a uh, hallway, like you would see if you were coming into a conference, mm-hmm. and then off of it are you know uh, doors to go into uh, the uh, the conference. There's uh, the registration desk. There's the hall for uh, for all the vendors, yeah. and you just click on that mm-hmm. icon for that, and you go into it. It was very nice. It was a good mm-hmm. way to uh, to visualize what you were looking at, and it made you kind of feel a little bit like you were there. Yeah, a bit more intuitive. Well, you know, you always say the ASC industry is very adaptable. So we are. I, I think everybody's done very well with, with keeping up with this stuff. So our first interview was with uh, Jeff Shanton and Bonnie Lavoie, uh, and they talk about what's going on in the state and, and a little bit about the conference also. So let's listen to them. This is uh, John Gailey. I'm um, with Bonnie Lavoie and uh, Jeff Shanton. We're uh, talking about the conference that just ended. And Bonnie, can you give us a little bit of insight as to uh, how you plan for and the types of, of events that were scheduled for this uh, for this conference in May? Well, this was an interesting adventure for us because it was our first virtual event. So that was there was a learning curve for me. I'm used to being at the podium and speaking, and it was a little different doing things virtually. So it, and it went well. It did. We have a great company. They guided us through everything, any questions we had, and I, I thought it went really well. Uh, from our feedback, also very positive feedback from our members. We had a, a, one of our, our post meeting yesterday. We're just now reviewing the surveys to see what we did well and what we can do better. And you know, a couple of things came forward. Um, nothing big, but things we'll be looking to improve the next time. Now, do you think you're going to continue doing virtual conferences? From I know you've got a, a live one coming up, actually a couple coming up. But do you, do you think you're still going to continue doing some virtual conferences at least? The hope is to be live in the future, um, right. depending on what happens. We, you never know what's going to happen yeah. these days. But the hope is to be live because the, the biggest piece that's missing in virtual, of course, is the networking and right. the friendships formed and, and sitting at the table and just trading secrets and policies and things like that. That piece is missing. On the other hand, for us, virtual is a little more financially, uh, it's better for us financially because we're not yeah. worried about a place and food and things like that. But, um, I like our new company so much. It's, uh, it's We Speak Easy. They're right. so good. Uh, I'm hoping that we can incorporate them in the future in uh, other plans that we have. Well, they had a nice portal that made it look like, yes. it's kind of cute because it kind of made it look like you were in uh, in the uh, waiting area or the the, uh, the lounge area before going into each yeah. of the rooms and you just clicked on one or the other. Yeah, it was it was done well and I think most of our members appreciated that. It wasn't, it wasn't hard to do. Yeah. So what what do you think was the highlight of the conference? Uh, you had the Department of Health come in, talk a little bit about things. You had, uh, you know, a couple of great speakers. I, I, I was there, of course. Uh, I better you know, say you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I better say you. <laughs> but it was fun. I mean, and plus it was a huge audience. I was actually quite impressed. Jeff was uh, telling me before we started recording that your membership is uh, is growing dramatically right now, too. Well, what was interesting is we did something new this year. We did the, what we call, not the rookie track, the novice track, and then the expert track. Yeah. So it allowed those people, especially in New Jersey, with a lot of the new one-room centers, with new administrators, to sit back and do quicker um, seminars and learn a little bit more basics than the rest of us. And I put myself in that group yeah. who've been around for a long, long time, and we didn't need the basics. We needed to move on t- to the next one. There, there were several. I mean, the COVID one, uh, which featured all three hospital systems was very interesting. Not coming, not being involved with the hospital it was interesting to see how how they um, developed their plans and their processes through that pandemic. Yeah, it was very. There was a lot of highlights, and yours is really always 
brings it back home. Stephanie Mosguy came from Baltimore to talk about Medicare. So we had a lot of featured guests, and I thought it went really well. Uh, can you give us a sneak preview of what uh, your next conference is going to be uh, including? I don't know yet. We just met yesterday and we're, we're going to take, we, we really work year round. We, we have right. monthly calls. We're going to take off uh, June and July and then hit it back up in August and start discussing when, where, how, and what kind of speakers we want. And it will, a lot of it will largely be based on the surveys and asking our members what they want. So it, that's how we'll proceed. And do we have dates yet for the conferences? We do not. Okay. Not yet. So I'm sure you'll tell me as soon as you get them so we can uh, tell our, our listening audience. Bonnie, what we're doing is we're going to have two episodes out of this. One uh, episode is going to be for the state association. But it'll be including uh, this interview so that we can um, you know, talk a little bit about things that are specific to New Jersey. And then uh, I had the honor of uh, being able to uh, have a panel discussion with uh, quite a number of your speakers, which basically had a national focus. So we'll make a national podcast out of that, too, so that uh, everyone else in the country can hear uh, some of the great speakers we had in uh, Yeah, in I was able to hear that, and I really... I liked what our speakers had to say. I think we, we had some really phenomenal speakers, very knowledgeable, um, very dedicated and committed people to the industry, and that made me very happy. Very good. Well, thanks so much for your time, Bonnie. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jeff. Sure. See you, Bonnie. So I'm here with uh, Jeff Shanton, uh, who's the president of the New Jersey State Association. And what a great conference that was. I was able to uh, join you for most of the time to listen to the other speakers. And I had the honor of uh, being your keynote as well as doing a, a session. And and then at noon, I was able to interview, I can't remember how many people, it was about four or five of your uh, speakers to talk about kind of issues that are uh, important to everybody in the country. But I wanted to uh, talk about what's going on in New Jersey right now. Jeff, your your conference uh, was was very popular. And I you, you were telling me before we started recording that your membership is up. So give me a membership update, first of all. Well, thanks, John. Appreciate it. We've been growing uh, by leaps and bounds. I've been part of the organization for, I don't even want to say, uh, <laughs> lots and lots and lots of years. Uh, Bonnie and I, in fact, we go way, way, way back. And we remember the bad old days when we were lucky if we had 70 or 80 members, yeah. a dozen vendors, you know, things like that. Well, you know, it was always hand to mouth. Well, you can't operate an organization like that. Yeah. You can't. I mean, you need membership, you need dues, you need revenue, all that stuff. So this is, I just started my sixth term and final term as president of the organization. So when I took over, my first goal was increase membership and increase revenue, which we've done. So we are now in between 190 and 200 member centers. Wow. Uh, by the end of the year, you know, we just started our membership drive. We will obviously go over the 200 mark. And I think that'll put us as the third largest state organization after only California and Florida. So it's right. amazing the growth. We also, unlike a lot of state organizations, we have vendor and corporate and associate members. Right. So not just people that sell widgets, but like RWJ Barnabas, Virtua, SCA, USPI, you know, Atlantic Care, people like that uh, are members, corporate members of the organization. Mm -hmm. And then we also have, like I said, associate, that's for the little guys, the uh, the little consulting companies that have one or two people. Uh, we give them a break as an associate member. They get to do what a regular vendor member would do, but we have them. So we've, we've got like 50 of them 
right now. Um, I was actually afraid during the dark days of COVID, during our renewals, that we were going to lose yeah. vendors because vendors are visual face-to-face -face people. But I was very heartened that we had a little bit of a drop-off. But my goodness, this spring, when we started doing our virtual events on our our, our wonderful platform that you had mentioned with Bonnie, between uh, the Infection Control Conference, the January quarterly, the Infection Control Conference, and then the uh, annual, I think we've picked up eight or 10 brand new vendors. So they're coming back to us. Yeah. And uh, now with the relaxation of uh, restrictions by the governor, we're looking forward to our fall uh, October quarterly meeting going to be face to face. So that'll be a very good thing. Well, and I think that's something unique about New Jersey, too, is that you have more meetings than, I, I mean, New York is unusual in yeah. that it has two meetings a year usually. Of course, things are a little bit different right now with the, the pandemic. And, and California has uh, one big conference, but it has a, yeah. a number of uh, smaller focus conferences. But it sounds like you have a pretty robust uh, meeting schedule, which is important in a state <laughs> like do. yours. Like I say, we do quarterly membership meetings. So there's three right there and then an annual. So there's four right there. Now, that that's bare bones. We then put on lots of other things. Yeah. Like I was saying, the end of March, we did in conjunction with Department of Health, the uh, annual infection control conference all day virtually. Right. That was extremely well attended. I think when I was watching uh, the attendees on it, we never were under about 310 viewers on that yeah. one. Obviously, a reason because what it did, the department joined us in it. And, you know, here in New Jersey, there's a requirement uh, that you must have an outside uh, infection control person, but you also have to have a dedicated one inside yeah. who has to have continuing education. Well, the department said participating in, you know, in our infection control conference would suffice as continuing education. So you got a lot of people that came on for that, which was good. And they got a, a certificate they can, you know, put when survey comes in and everything like that. So it was, it was a very successful, uh, successful meeting, but it does, it's not face to face. Like yeah. Bonnie said, uh, our vendors, especially, you know, I mean, that's, that's what they like and that's what we like. And, in fact, our October one, we will have educational content like we always do in speakers, but we're going to make it more like a uh, welcome back home, you know, kind of meeting. We're going to do a few fun things. We want people to bond and, you know, network and get back together because even though we're big, we're just one big family. Yeah. That's the way I look. At, that's the way I look at it. You know, I mean. Gone are the days, though, when I could walk around and I would, by sight, know the face of every single person. Now I find myself looking at their name tags <laughs> because it's, you know, I just can't keep up with uh, the amount of uh, people we have. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing when, you know, you don't have to worry about your finances. You know right. what I mean? And you can, you know, lobby and do all the kinds of things that a state organization really, really needs to do. Well, I think that's one of the things that's most impressive about your state association is that it really truly has a very close relationship with uh, your Department of Health and a good relationship there and, and uh, a lot of support. And, and that was very evident during the conference. And of course, as you said, with the other conferences that you do that focus on things like infection control. Yep. I mean, I can send an email or pick up the phone and I can get the deputy commissioner or, you know, anybody like that, you know, and they'll respond right away. We've always had it. It's just become very, very, it's become closer during the pandemic. 
because when the pandemic first started, the department, well, even before I had, we, we were proactive. We reached out to all the ASCs in the state because we saw it coming and we sent them an Excel spreadsheet and said, we want to know PPE. We want to know ventilators and this and that. Well, we had that before it became mandatory by the governor with a public health, uh, one of his public health dictums and, yeah. and whatever. So they were very impressed with that. And from that time on, we have worked hand in hand with them on all the executive directives, you know, that tell us what to do and how to do it from reopening to testing to all that kind of stuff. And the fact I was just talking to the uh, deputy commissioner this morning, she says Friday or Monday, I doubt Friday, but we should have the newest revised ED for ASCs out the beginning of next week. We're operating under one that was from last October. Can yeah. you imagine? I mean, there were no vaccines even last October. So there'll be testing changes and all kinds of things like that. You know, we, they, in fact, what they did when we, when I said, look, we need it, they said, well, why don't you guys write the revised ED and send it to us? So that's what we did. So that yeah. that just shows you right yeah. there, you know, what we're what we're talking about. So um, so it's not so you've given some very good reasons for membership that you know to join as a member of the the state association. Do you have a special deal going on right now? Do I understand? Yeah, we do. We always have a membership drive. We usually started it in July or, or August uh, after our annual event. Our annual event was early this year. We did an early one in May, the beginning of May. We usually do second week in June. So because of that, I kicked it off the beginning of June. Any center or vendor who has never been a member of the organization, if you join now, you know, during the membership drive, you get the rest of 2021 and all of 2022 for just one one price. So you're if you join now, you're getting 18 months for the price of 12. That's a great deal. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I was uh, joking with Jeff beforehand. <laughs> I didn't realize that my company wasn't a member because uh, I don't handle that part of it. So uh, we 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 jumped on that uh, on that deal right away, uh, Jeffrey. So yeah, I think it's, it's a great, great it's a great deal. In fact, I tell all the time senders and vendors when they say about joining because we're January to January, you know yeah. what I mean? So if you join me in June, you're going to get a bill in January. You know, I mean, that's yeah. just how we work. We don't prorate. So I'm all about uh, transparency and what's best for them. So I tell them, wait until we put the membership drive out, then join. That's yeah. your best deal. Well, and again, I, I want to emphasize uh, the in-person conferences that I've had with you are some of my favorite you know, again, I know so many of your people out there, and the people that uh, certainly it's the it's the same crowd of speakers generally that that we see. So it's like coming home again. But uh, it is probably one of the most interactive uh, conferences that we have, and and definitely a lot of opportunities for yep. networking, which is so important. I, you know, uh, Jeffrey, we we've just come out of some uh, conference boot camps, and for people that are kind of new to the ASC industry, and we continue to emphasize the importance of networking. I, I don't know of another industry that requires it as much as we do because we have to work together so closely. Well, the other part too, Bonnie alluded to it is, you know, again, me being the 35 year dinosaur in the industry <laughs> that I am, and I won't include Bonnie in that, you know, we're getting to the end of our tenure, yeah. you know, this, especially we see it here in New Jersey. I'm sure it's all over, but there are so many newbies, wet behind the ears people coming into the industry as administrators, DONs, and everything else like that. You know, they need help and they need guidance. And that is what 
That is ultimately what your state organization is about. That's why for the uh, annual event, we did, I suggested, and people thought, well, it's never going to work. You know, well, guess what? It worked wonderfully. We had a dual track. We had a novice refresher track, and then we had a expert track. There were more people signed up for the novice refresher track than there were for the expert track. Yeah. So that that just tells you that people are just you know they're they they're just craving information. What we also do as an organization, by the way, is every Monday all the members get our electronic newsletter, the news you need to know. That mm-hmm. goes out every Monday to members only. We also have been sending out since last March when the pandemic hit, the department came to me and said, would you be the liaison and the point of contact for everything ASCs for your membership? Mm -hmm. And I said, no. And they go, what? And I said, no, I won't do it for the membership. I'll do it for every ASC, whether they're members or not. So that led me to start publishing a COVID e-blast that just had COVID information in it. And uh, that still continues, not at the pace it did, obviously, months ago, but that still continues. So it reaches out to all ASCs in the state of New Jersey, whether you're a member or not. That still means you should be a member because you're missing other things that are in the news to know, you know, regulatory and things like that. But at least we try and we try to provide a service to everybody. Absolutely. And I get that. And it's an excellent document or excellent weekly update. So it helps me to keep current with what's going on in New Jersey. So I appreciate it. And ASCA uses it. uh, There's been times ASCA's called and said, hey, can we use your ideas about this or that or whatever? And it's like, sure, go right ahead. So uh, my new favorite word is pivot, uh, Jeff. So I thought let's let's now pivot to what's going on in New Jersey. Kind of uh, give us a, a brief overview for our listeners here about the uh, the activities of the state association, just in general, what's going on from a regulatory standpoint in New Jersey. Well, John, as you and I were talking about earlier, you know, it's it's unfortunate with the political climate in the country. And that, you know, spills over to this state in in particular, Uh, actually, our sister state, New York, as well. I mean, I think we're kind of like joined at the hip with the way our governors are and what they do and everything like that. And we face a Uh, lot of the same challenges in these two states. Yeah, Yeah. well, well, actually, you know, I think it was what wasn't in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. I think they all the governors joined together in in an ad hoc and said, we'll try to do the same thing all the time. Well, the unfortunate thing is our governor didn't do that. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, in fact, when uh, CDC came out, what, four weeks ago or whatever, or three weeks ago with the masking stuff, he just said, we're not following it. Yeah. We're, we're, we're not following it. And, you know, so obviously you can imagine what my life was like when that came out, because everybody was calling and emailing saying, oh, we don't have, I go, no, no. Well, CDC said it, I go, does not matter what CDC, CMS or anybody else says. All that matters is what the governor and your regulatory bodies in the state say. They take precedent. That's why you have to listen to them. Well, he came back and forth with it a couple times and everything. But the upshot is, is, you know, you're still masking in healthcare facilities and things like that. But what what's really been an issue here is reopening the state to business and things like that. And uh, right now, as we speak, there's fast track legislation, no public hearing, none of that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's kind of iffy as what's going on here. But they are the legislator, legislature and the governor are trying to make it look as if this law, if it's passed, would back 
down on his emergency powers. Yeah. You know, that's a big issue amongst a lot of states. Yeah, New York well, also. Yeah. yeah, well, the thing everybody has to realize, which I tell them all the time, is per the state constitution here, this is the second most powerful governor in the country. Okay, so there's no governor in the universe I know that is going to give up his powers. That's right. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of legislators, when this was out a week or so ago, said, what is the purpose of this legislation? It really doesn't do anything. Well, there was so much opposition that the assembly speaker pulled it. The state president and the assembly speaker, they just put it up, fast-tracked it, no committee hearing, no public hearing, none of that. They tweaked it a little bit here and there. Essentially, what it would do is he's not going to issue any more public health emergencies. Doesn't mean a thing because there's caveats in there that uh, say, well, if the rate of transmission and good luck trying to figure out what that is in this state and the, the, the metrics they use. I can then declare, you know what I mean, and go back and do, you know, all kinds of different things. So you're really not accomplishing anything. Uh, It also says, well, we're going to take away a a month after the bill's passed, the executive orders will go away. Well, they they will expire, except for 14. Well, those 14 are the ones that matter. (laughs) So, you know, it's like I, I don't understand what it really does. And the the bill that's going through now also says that there will there is no ability of media anybody to use Oprah or any other sunshine laws to try to get data from the governor's office or the department of what transpired past so there you go yeah <laughs> but but what on the on the bright side uh, I speaking with the deputy commissioner this morning we should have a revised ED out for ASCs by the beginning of next week that will finally do a few things, you know, if people were vaccinated. Because right now we have to test and qu- you have to test. And while you're after you've tested, you have to quarantine until you come in and do the procedure. So there's going to be some relief for some of that probably the vaccinated people. Right. Similar to what New York has already done. Yeah. Right. There's going to be some. Yeah. See, the difference was with us, you know, as opposed to New York, we were dealing with a 16 page executive directive. You know what I mean? That had to be gone through. Literally, we did this line by line, taking in, taking out. And some of the stuff in the directive were dependent upon executive orders from the governor. I know I confuse people when I say that, but it was so intertwined. It's like, well, even though we don't need that in there, well, we can't take it out unless the governor rescinds an executive order. Like right now, we have to, we still have to every Monday report via a portal, PPE, inventory, and other kinds of questions. Yeah. That ship is, you know what I mean? That that, that ship is sailed. Too much, right. No reason for any of that, you know, anymore. And I keep telling the department, but the problem is it's linked to an executive order. So yeah. we have to see if we can get that rescinded to get that out of the executive directive. I want to go back to, uh, we, we had talked earlier about um, the uh, infection control requirement. And uh, one of the things that's been near and dear to my heart, being on the board of uh, the Ambulatory Surgery Center uh, Certification Board, uh, BASC, which uh, does uh, oversees the CASC and the CAPE credentials, right. uh, New Jersey does not accept the CAPE credential, to the best of my knowledge, as uh, certification for uh, for that independent consultant that would come in. Correct. 
That's something that's been discussed. Yeah, believe me, that's something that's been discussed. In fact, we have a whole we have a whole laundry list of things. What what we as the organization always did is about three times a year, we went down to Trenton and we sat with the department, just us. They told us what they were thinking. We told them what we were thinking. It was a great, you know, well, can't do that anymore because state offices are still closed. Yeah. So we're hoping that come July, August, when the governor says he's going to reopen, that we can then sit down and have a face to face with them and, you know, talk to them about, you know, some of these issues. Well, I, I mean, it's critical, I think. I mean, so many of uh, I mean, Cape is growing leaps and bounds right now. Yeah. It's becoming a very popular and of course, it's focused specifically on ASCs. There's nothing wrong with the CIC credential. It's just it has a completely different focus than ours. Um, well, as I say, the, the, the state moves slowly. The yeah. departments move slowly. People have to understand that all the time. Like our, the, the ASC regulations, I, I mean, there's been talk about reviewing them, revising them for years and years and years. And I remember, God, it has to be a dozen years ago or so, maybe even more, when we were actually engaged with that. And it never went anywhere because the Department of Health was hooked, was locked up on the definition of what is surgery. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. There you go. Any other uh, legislation or uh, issues on the horizon that New Jersey uh, surgery centers need to know about? Well, we've been pretty lucky. Um, you know, it's it's an election year, so that helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the, all, all the Assembly, Senate, and the governor are up, so that helps. Yeah. But every year we usually have a fight with, you know, the ambulatory assessment. Uh, that we always have to beat back, which we've been successful in doing forever. Uh, that didn't rear its ugly head this year because of the election. I'm sure it's going to come up next year. Yeah. Uh, it always does. We're always very, very careful about that. The only other, uh, the other thing that we're watching that goes into effect July 1st, I believe, is the healthcare transparency law. Now, that's not out of network or disclosure. This is a law that it will mandate not just in ASCs, but hospitals and everything that doctors are now going to have to make sure that they either embroidered or with a, uh, a badge, a, their exact and full name, what they are, their credentials, you know, everything like that. And in an ASC setting, we're going to have to have signage. That lists all the doctors, anesthesiologists, everything like that, you know, whatever available for the public uh, to see. That goes back to the impetus of that goes back to, oh, several months ago when, uh, you know, we were in COVID and I don't know exactly what law bill or whatever was being testified, but apparently some people presented themselves to the governor as doctors that weren't. Oh, and no. he found that yeah. out and you know, you do you know what hit the fan. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this bill that had been sitting there and languishing for eight years now got fast tracked and pushed out. So, yeah, that's what we that's what we have to do. The other thing is we're still our out of network legislation, our surprise billing, which we had before lots of states did. And as an organization, this well, this is that was going on for God, I, I probably fought that for eight years not on the uh, the premise of what it is, but just on how the bill was written. Right. It just was no good. I mean, for instance, it would have made it a felony for doctors to, you know, you, you, you can't have felonies for doctors. Over the top, yeah. 
you know, and stuff like that. Well, we finally got one that, um, you know, was okay. And that included uh, what the feds are now looking at, baseball arbitration, you know, for emergency room docs and things like that. You know, if you go to a hospital and your hospital's in network, but your anesthesiologist or pathologist or whatever isn't, those are the protections. Uh, And instead of, uh, you know, them just saying, well, sorry, doc, you have to take what the in-network rate would be. Now those docs can baseball arbitrate. So that's a good thing because I know our congressional delegation used our state law at Washington to say, Hey, why don't you do something like this? Yeah. Once again, what everybody has to remember with this is this again is another state versus federal thing that, you know, we have that state law already. So it really doesn't much matter what the feds do, Yeah. you know, with their law ours they're in place and applies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. I'm uh, looking forward to, uh, now that I'm a member, I'm looking forward to even more communication. Uh, and uh, keep in touch. We'll definitely uh, be at your uh, at your big conferences here and uh, record another episode. And uh, you always have great speakers that uh, have a national pull anyway. So it's always a great uh, great opportunity for us to get some uh, content for our, our conference. So I appreciate that from from your organization. Thank you, John. You're always welcome. You always will be. And thank you very much for the kind words. And uh, we'll see you in October. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Jeff. Sure. Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central and add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a, a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. And then next, I had an opportunity at noon on uh, May 12th to do a panel discussion with uh, quite a number of the speakers uh, during the conference. So let's listen now to that panel discussion. So, uh, Matthew Collins, I'd like to uh, inv- uh, welcome you to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. You uh, did a session here at the New Jersey State Association meeting. So, Matthew, you did a session on what every, uh, what every employer needs to know about the legal risk of uh, uh, at-risk employment. We all know right now that uh, we are we're facing some pretty serious uh, hiring 
uh, challenges in the industry. It's actually it's universal. It's not just healthcare. It's not just surgery centers, but really uh, all small businesses now are really struggling uh, to uh, to hire employees, to find employees, uh, and and I'm, I'm afraid that uh, some of the challenges that we have now are we we bring people on board uh, that might not uh, you know they're a warm body and they might not have been fully vetted. So there are going to be situations where we're going to have to find. Uh, to discover ways to uh, terminate employees. To do it uh, your session was on, on how to, to uh, reduce those risks. Um, so uh, wh- what was the biggest takeaway that you want our listeners to, uh, to have from, from that session? I think the biggest takeaway is that there's a lot of misconceptions about at-will employment. I have many clients that will come to me after either being sued by an employee for wrongful termination or receiving a demand letter from an attorney and their response frequently is, well, this was an at-will employee. How can I be sued? And the, the reality is, is that at-will employment is really not going to be a defense to almost all of the type of wrongful termination claims that we see. Uh, that's because there is a vast amount of state and federal uh, laws that grant various rights to employees and at the same time put many burdens and obligations on the employer. And if the employer is not familiar with those obligations, they could unwittingly uh, terminate somebody who is uh, then going to set them up for a potential claim of, again, wrongful termination, discrimination, retaliation, uh, anything like that. So the the key really takeaway for employers is to recognize they never really should be looking to defend uh, an employment action based upon somebody being at will. Really, they need to look at the the laws that might be triggered. They need to be familiar with those laws and hopefully take some steps that are proactive to try and reduce the risk of those type of uh, unlawful termination claims. So, Matthew, it goes without saying that documentation is extremely important. Did you have any advice uh, on on how to uh, the best document uh, your uh, your your thought processes? Yeah, so documentation, I agree 100%, is very critical. The lack of documentation is going to be seized upon by the employee's attorney. Um, I find that a very easy way to document things these days are through emails. It's a very quick way to either confirm a conversation that you had with somebody, said, hey, we talked about XYZ issues, you're deficient in this area, we need you to improve, or otherwise there's going to have to be some action taken against you. Uh, you know, having formal performance reviews are very good, but you don't really want to wait to document once a year. It really should be an ongoing process that is happening throughout the course of the year and preferably is happening contemporaneously. So if an incident happens, meet with a person and document it uh, fairly quickly. Uh, the documentation um The ideal documentation is to document it directly to the employee. Uh, If you are not comfortable with that, at least some type of memo to the file also could suffice. So, uh, John uh, Karwaski, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You did, a, you did a session on protecting our patients and our employees, so kind of uh, segueing, uh, hopefully a, a, a logical segue here, is uh, once we got them hired and hopefully we keep them around, how do we protect them and how do we make sure that we're protecting our, our, uh, our patients also that, are, uh, that have come to our center? So your session uh, was on that topic. Uh, what was the biggest takeaway that you want our audience to know? 
And John, as you know, education is so important to the staff to understand regulations and regulatory changes, as you do in your daily site visits. I'm doing that with our clinical staff. USP 797 is a concept that I presented this morning. It relates to safe injection practice that uh, is required in every healthcare institution, whether you're making uh, compounded drugs in hospital clean rooms or preparing a syringe in a surgery center. The USP 797 standards will roll out through all of these um, uh, various uh, activities. And I think really educating staff in technique and the proper uh, handling of, of sterile injectable drugs was the message today. And knowing what the regulation is and how the regulation will be interpreted, you're very big into your podcast. I listen to your podcast and the interpretive guidelines of the standards are, are critical in allowing the staff to um, know how to perform uh, activities correctly and protect our patients and our fellow employees. So as a surveyor, I will tell you, uh, USP 797 is my, I mean, it's one of those things I keep with me all the time. It's one of the, I, I, we, we have this, uh, um, I don't know if I call it a joke or a, a standard phrase. If, if we're in a surgery center and we're having problems finding something to cite, all I do is follow the anesthesio anesthesiologist <laughs> around for a few minutes uh, and I'm going to find something. And, and, and I'm constantly at odds with them, especially those anesthesiologists that are, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here, Monty. Uh, <laughs> anesthesiologists that, uh, that work in hospitals that come back and tell me, uh, oh, I don't have to do this in the hospital. First of all, I don't believe them. Uh, and then uh, second, I also recognize that, you know, that we have a lot more scrutiny. We have, you know, you have surveyors that are coming out to the surgical unit obviously in a surgery center, whereas in the hospital, uh, you know, Jayco might not be showing up. So, so, uh, so just quick advice on, on, uh, who, who should you watch? How can they, how can we convince them that it's important to do this and what quick tools might be available for that? And, and Monty and I talk quite a bit about this topic in trying to gain, uh, the compliance with different, uh, specialties. Anesthesia is some, a practice that's been, around ever since surgery started. And I think the changes that have occurred recently, especially with USP 797, have been dramatic in the way they perform their activities. Monty and I are trying to determine how can we get this accomplished by what's in it for them and not doing it as a uh, disciplinary, you know, punal way of, of reporting. And I talked about an anesthesiologist this morning that I met with last week at a center that was evident that he would not be uh, complying. He was going to be splitting vials. He was had drug shortages and there was no one going to change them. And after about 10 minutes, we agreed that he will be rounding with me on my next visit, understanding the role that I have as a consultant pharmacist in allowing his patients to have the safest procedure possible. So I think it really needs a lot of handholding and it needs a lot of one-on-ones and it can't be punitive with a specialty such as, uh, you know, a medical staff profession that, um, you know, we think is just going to change because because it's written in a regulation. Well said. Uh, so Monty, why don't we segue over to you? You uh, did a session on preoperative screening and testing. Um, I'll tell you, I mean, of course, huge changes. Uh, who, who would have ever anticipated that we needed to uh, to do what we're doing today in addition to making sure the patient is an appropriate candidate for surgery? But uh, it is so important now uh, in today's environment to uh, to make sure we're on top of this. So what, what advice did you give? What do you think is a big takeaway from your session? 
You know, I think moving into the future, we really have to get rid of the old concepts of a shotgun approach that all patients are identical. We need all these labs and, you know, all all this information from every patient so that we can determine, you know, it, it just requires so much filtering and we get so much really almost useless information regarding how patients are going to move through our system. We have to develop systems within each of our ASCs you know, that are specific to each patient and each procedure. I think classically, you know, we, we think about anesthesia being the major risk and they always determine which patients can come through, you know, in a sense, and especially as we move to higher acuity procedures in our ASCs, we really need to stratify the procedure as one of the major determinants of risk of what kind of screening we're going to do on these patients and emphasize that it's going to be web-based Patients are going to be able to have to provide information on their own terms, you know, not through phone tag. And then we can process the information based on algorithm and only get what's specific for each patient and each procedure. And that can also be narrowed down to the facility as well. Each facility has different capabilities. I've heard that as a theme today in all the, uh, in all the lectures that I heard. And so, you know, all that combined to get specific information to determine if patients could get through our ASCs and have their procedure done safely. I, I find uh, preoperative screening to be a, a big challenge in, in many of uh, the centers that I visit. Um, you know, cancellations, last minute cancellations, understanding the importance of, of good screening beforehand, especially in those centers. We find a lot in GI centers, for example, very poor upfront screening, which results in cancellations, results in, uh, in uh, patients that have arrived with uh, already going through a, a, a very uh, arduous uh, um, prep and then find out that they're being canceled because nobody had bothered to, to do a good screening. Uh, what type of tools do you think should be uh, at the top of everybody's list uh, in preparing for that? Well, I think one of the major things that and we have, we, we definitely, uh, we wrestle with the same difficulties in the uh, GI centers throughout the virtuous system. Uh, it's all about educating the, the, uh, the providers, the surgeons, the proceduralists. They're the first line of defense. And I think it's often missed that they need to start that screening process right when they see these patients. And if anyone needs an early intervention, they need to provide that information even earlier than they should. And, you know, I think a lot of times when we go into our centers, we find that patients are screened only the night before they're getting these phone calls because they've already gotten, especially in the GY, in the GI world, they already have their instructions to how to do prep, what meds to hold the night before they're getting a call from the ASC. And that is way too late in this process. The screening should really start to occur as soon as a patient is booked. And a lot of times that information is not being transmitted to the ASC. They're not even getting the bookings until the day before. The ASC just has slots. So the more we can push out to the practices to make them understand how essential screening is, that leads to much fewer cancellations. And if items, if the screening process is web-based, and patients could do it at their own time and start as soon as they know they're having a procedure. That definitely makes the system a lot more efficient, a lot fewer cancellations, and I think it makes for a much more streamlined process. So, Corey, there's been a lot of changes as a result of COVID, a lot of, um, I, I would say, opportunities. That's one thing that we've been preaching both in our company and on the podcast uh, is that uh, COVID has, uh, if we, if we, uh, if we play our cards right, has opened up some opportunities that perhaps weren't there before. Uh, so, Corey, your session was on service lines made easy. Can you give us a, 
uh, an overview of what you talked about and what a uh, big takeaway was from that. Sure. Um, I, I co-spoke with Bonnie, so we actually split the presentation and we tried to make it simple for centers to really start looking outside the box about what they're capable of. Um, you know, as you mentioned, COVID kind of brought a lot of opportunities to the surgery centers. And I think what, what it should show us as administrators and leaders in the surgery centers is that we're really capable of doing a lot of things that we may not have thought we were before. You know, we didn't think we could pivot so quickly and implement some of these changes that, that were every week or some of them even daily. Um, so, so taking on a service line now sh shouldn't be as intimidating as it once was. And we really tried to make it simple for everybody to kind of look outside the box and not be so emotionally attached to a decision. Um, you know, either definitely this was something that their center should do or definitely not and really work some some steps and analyze whether or not this made sense for their center. Are they going to get paid for it? Do they have the space for it? Do they have a committed uh, champion team to do it? So they have champion physician, do they have a champion anesthesiologist, OR, and even PACU team? Um, and then and do they have the space to do it? Um, you know, some of the, all this new technology is wonderful, but it takes up a lot of space. And where do we put it? Because none of us built our surgery centers to accommodate all of these things. We ne Most of us probably never dreamed that we'd be doing total joints or even cardiac procedures in an ASC setting. So we didn't design our, our facilities for that. And most of us are running out of space just with what we have. So how can we think outside the box and how can we really make sure that we're making the right decision? Yeah, try to fit a, a one of those robots into a... An existing center yeah. with a, a C arm and all the other video equipment we have. Trust me, it takes up a lot of space. Exactly. Uh, so, what what do you think are some of the the biggest opportunities that have uh, speaking as to you know the last year? What I, I mean, I mentioned in uh, my session earlier that uh, you know total joints have uh, really taken off, and I think it's I I, I believe it's because people don't really want to you know, go at a hospital anymore. Patients want to, uh, to be in our environment. What do you think are going to be the, well, what do you think are the er uh, areas that they should be focusing on keeping an eye out for that might have uh, better reimbursement and better opportunities? I think, I, as you mentioned, total joints, if you have the capability, especially if you're already doing orthopedics or have a physician that might be interested or um, links to a physician that might be interested in establishing a program, I think the sooner you get your program established and get your team on board to refine that program, the better, because I think more and more joints are going to be coming outside of the hospital. And I think you do it now or you can do it later, but do it now when you have the opportunity that you can really build at the pace that you want to. You don't have to, you know, you don't have that high volume necessarily coming right out. You can start with one or two and you can build your programs and refine your program as you go through. I also looking, think looking at some of these cardiac, uh, cardiac procedures, they're going to be coming more outpatient. Um, but as you mentioned too, more and more patients are going to want to come out of the hospital. Right. You know, I think we've been ready for years and we've been trying to tell them that we had lower infection rates, but now they really believe us. I think this yeah. time, I think this yeah. time we really got them. And I think our physicians, you know, we, we tried to always make it easy for them to schedule cases, but now with the backlogs that some of the hospitals have or some of the restrictions that they have, they're really seeing that it could be a great relationship. Um, so these are really the times to think outside the box, like the joints, like GI, like I talked about in my session with multi-specialty. Some of these procedures that we may just think this just doesn't work, it could work. And I think that's where the centers just have to get a little bit creative. And as you mentioned, the ability to be able to pivot on a dime, being able, that's something that... Uh, 
we always joke in our company that whenever a hospital hires us, we double our fee because of all the committee meetings that we have to go to. Um, and then in an ASC, it's so much easier to implement stuff. So uh, definitely, that's I think a hallmark of our of our uh, of our industry, and we need to to capitalize on that. And and to that end, Andrew, you did a moderated a session on uh, joint ventures and and uh, how uh, best to capitalize on that. Um, talk a little bit about how. Uh, what you what your panel discussed and uh, what some of the key takeaways were from that. Sure. Well, um, we had a keynote speaker today that um, talked about his broad experience and long experience in the ASC industry. I'm much, much younger uh, than you. <laughs> Thanks a but, lot. Uh, <laughs> I'll get even with you. <laughs> I know. Um, that said, uh, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I think that my biggest takeaway was – when you go back to that time period of 20 years, probably up to about maybe even 10 years ago, um, the cooperation between uh, the healthcare systems and ASCs was, let's say, frosty to be <laughs> yes. polite. Um, certainly not antagonistic to the point that in some states, particularly CON states, where where you know it was outright hostile. But the idea of ASCs and hospitals working together. You know, it, it it was just not a concept that that we were familiar with. So fast forward now, we had three representatives from three different healthcare systems in the state uh, that proved a point that you know the joint ventures that uh, hospitals have now entered in with physicians um, were probably based on economic factors, uh, higher reimbursement rates, for instance. Um, but yet, you know, here in this past year or so. You know the the support that was given to help guide ASCs through this pandemic um, by providing communication, by providing uh, resources, by providing uh, a lifeline in some cases for helping ASC uh, to keep their employees employed by, by redeployment was very impressive. Very and 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 I think uh, you know proved that at the end of the day. You know, we, we are all working together and we are all rowing the boat in the same direction. So what do you think is the future, Andrew, of uh, of the hospital ASC relationship? Where do you think we might be heading? I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time trying to predict that, and I'm asked that question all the time. So just interested in your perspective on that. Well, I think we've, we've taught the hospital uh, industry, you know, a few lessons the very nature, as you mentioned uh, in, in speaking with Corey, that we can turn on a dime. Um, you know, the the structure of of our governance, the structure of you know the very nature of you know how we operate is predicated on being able to react quickly. Um, we don't we don't have those layers that hospitals do. I think hospitals realize that you know in order, and I think again, Johnny spoke to this. In, in order to be successful, you can't just plug a hospital-trained person into an ASC. Once that realization, I think, took place, uh, you know, for the healthcare systems, and they seeked out people to manage their joint ventures to prove that there's value to that, I, I, I think that those relationships are going to be stronger, and, those, and, and these arrangements, either if you're part of a, of, a, of a joint venture, or even if you're outside of a joint venture, um, I, I, I think we'll be working even closer 
with uh, with hospitals to help find the, the appropriate place of service, you know, for you know whichever service line that's uh, most beneficial for the best outcome, and that means not only clinically the best outcome, but also financially the best outcome. I think it's going to continue and be and be even stronger. So, Claire, it all comes down to quality in the end. Uh, I left you for last for a very specific reason. First of all, I'm passionate about it. I know you are too. Um, so uh, all of what we've talked about up until now doesn't mean anything if we can't prove to our our patients, if we can't prove to the doctors that we bring, that we recruit, that we can provide good quality care. So your uh, the title of yours is, I, I love it, Embracing Quality Improvement. I talked about it in, in my session that uh, quality improvement is not paper. I mean, I know that is a perception. It, it is a culture. So... Uh, now, you know, you, you probably had the broadest uh, topic to talk about. Can you just kind of give uh, our audience a bit of an idea of, of what you focused on in your session? Well, you're absolutely right, and thanks for your words. Um, so embracing quality, you know, quality is a huge topic and is worthy of, you know, seminars on their own. So I focused on doing an overview of quality improvement and I guess more of an introduction on quality improvement um, in the novice track. And I think the biggest takeaway that I wanted people to leave with was to understand that quality improvement is not a punitive issue, but more of an educational approach. And that's been my personal professional um, philosophy since I've been a nurse. And in my earlier nursing days, um, my impressions and experiences with the quality improvement team was that they would come down to our unit and all we hear is about what we're doing wrong, what we're doing wrong, we're not doing this right. I said, but all right, so how do we make it better? And we are doing a lot of things right and that should be recognized. And I would tell my staff, don't hide, you know, I'll deal with them. So, as years went on and my experiences became more diverse and always were involved with quality, that was what I took to everybody. This is education. We're going to look at doing it this way because it's better for the patients. It's what the evidence-based science says. It's what everybody says is right for right now. So the primary goal of quality is to evaluate assess, identify what's being done well, what can be done better, where are there areas for improvement if the standards or the outcomes are not showing that the compliance is being met to where it, it should be. Um, so those are my basic professional values, as you know, I mentioned before, that I take in all my approaches and promote not only in my company, but with my client ASCs, because it is one that I truly believe in. I believe in that QI should be collaborative. It should be a team approach, not something feared, but something embraced, because the ultimate goal is to improve um, patient quality of care and improve safety to the patients we take care of. That said, quality um, is time-consuming, and um, can be very frustrating to a lot of people and not 
everybody has the same resources within their facility to be able to devote the time that it does take. Um, so that's one thing that everybody within your facility needs to look at. Where do we build in this time? Who are our resources? Who can we use, whether internally or externally, you know, for a consult? But just know that there are resources out there to help. They are required by regulation and accreditation, but it should be more than just for that. Again, it's embracing it to improve the quality of care we give our patients. I think when I get a, I get a new client or when I'm working with a client that is just new into the ASC space and trying to understand quality improvement, and especially when I'm talking to nurses who are somewhat new to the process, I emphasize to them that you as a nurse uh, do quality improvement every day. And you know, you're used to, as a nurse, not getting credit for what you're doing. You find a problem, you fix the problem, and you move on. Quality improvement is sometimes quite simply that, uh, identifying what it is that you fixed, putting it down on paper, making sure that you broadcast it to everybody possible so that they understand um, uh, and learn from that experience. We, we have to learn from our past experiences. We don't want to hide it. And that's why it's so important that it not be a punitive process, that we learn from those things that didn't quite work right. So, do you have you know some advice as to how to encourage, especially, and when I say younger people, I'm not necessarily meaning always young people, uh, but people that are new to the industry or are coming over from a hospital environment, uh, how they might uh, learn to embrace quality and, and become advocates instead of just thinking this is something I have to do in order to get the paperwork in line? Yeah, and those are great points and a great question. Um, I think like any other job that each of us do, any other tasks that um, nurses learn in nursing school and, you know, learn going into practice as new nurses, switching to different specialties, learning new things. I think quality is the same thing. It comes down to learning about it. Learning is, learning is knowledge and knowledge is power. And once one understands what the quality improvement process is, that whole cycle, and there's, you know, there's resources out there, but once you understand what that process is, it's easier to now to try to assimilate it into the mechanisms of reporting the documentation that's required. But you're absolutely right. As nurses, as healthcare providers, and no matter what, job anybody's in, we do this every day. And we all go out with the intent of improving what we do. And that's quality. Long ago, when I first established my business, um, I adopted the process from AAAHC. And I don't mean to be, you know, promoting one agency over another, but their 10 step, their 10 elements process is the one that really clearly defines, makes sense, and really have to learn it, understand it. And it's adapted by every accreditation agency and regulatory surveyors. Um, so I think that's probably a start, whether an agency is accredited by Joint Commission, um, Quad A, uh, AAA, no matter who it is, it's still the same process. And the other part is, I think it's incumbent upon administration, the governing board, to also embrace it and send out culture, that message to everybody in the facility that, 
Again, it's not punitive. This is educational. It relates to patient care. And this is why we ought to embrace it and work together as a team. Okay. I, so what I thought I would do uh, now is open up uh, to, to all the panelists, anybody that wants to uh, chime in. We, we've had a difficult year. This has been a, a challenging year. I mean, we, we say that all the time, but, but it has also been an opportunity to learn a lot, I think, uh, be it um, how to make sure that we follow the regulations, how do we pivot uh, with regard to the types of services that we're offering, how we revise uh, our quality improvement programs in order to adapt to the new reality that we have, how we uh, interface with, uh, you know, hospital systems, joint ventures. Um, we're, we're finding, uh, you know, development has suddenly begun again and that there's a lot of opportunities out there, you know, for uh, new, uh, new surgery centers or expansions. So I just want to put the question out there, or uh, the question out to everybody here. Uh, you know what? What is uh, something that you've learned in this last year that you think uh, has been an important part of your development and and your your organization's development? I could start that, uh, John. Sure, Manny. I think um, you know our ASC staff leadership have really learned what they you know how far they could go during this pandemic. I think the easiest thing for everyone to do at the beginning was shut the doors. You know, and then we'll just come out from our, our hole when this is all over. But in fact, um, what our experience has shown is, you know, being thinking forward, being a part of the solution and trying to to understand what our role was during this pandemic. We gained a lot of strength out of that. And I think our ASCs all realized, you know, that they're an essential part of the healthcare system and they can provide essential care under the most trying circumstances. And staff, you know, it's been said over and over that you can't take a, a hospital staff member and move them into the ASC. But I think what we learned, interestingly enough, is our ASC staff are so competent that they can pivot on a dime and really become infection, you know, infection control and infectious disease experts in moments and be able to provide you know, the highest quality of care to very susceptible patients and do it in just such a phenomenal fashion. I think we, we really showed what role we play in the healthcare system and how far we, we've come and how far we can go. I'd like to add um, a little bit outside of the ASC. Uh, I agree with Monty 100%, not number one, but also the, the importance and relevance of our state and national associations. We always look to them to help us, you know, with regulatory issues and, you know, with, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, fighting uh, those that we, we think, you know, are against us for, you know, imposing higher degrees of uh, hurdles or, or regulations. But in New Jersey, uh, a plug for the ASC Association, you know, we, number one, found that our relationship with the Department of Health really helped uh, give guidance not only to our, our our member centers but to all ASCs in the state. You know, our, our mission, which is to promote outpatient surgery in the state, you know, transcends membership. We help craft some of the uh, regulations with the department. They looked at us as the subject matter experts, and we're continuing to to do so. Uh, you know, daily we help member centers and, and uh, uh, you know, with questions about interpretation of, the, of those regulations. We work with ASCA as well uh, in, in guidance on, you know, determining uh, whether it's 
guidelines for elective surgery, which we help disseminate from the uh, ASA and American College of Surgeons. You know, all, all of these resources became vital. I, I can't stress that word enough, vital for us to maintain operations during this time. And to add, um, I think it was really important to learn this year how important it was to make sure we surround ourselves with a good team and really lean on our colleagues. I think this topic in particular, it was um, evident that it is impossible for one person to know or keep up with all the everything and changes. And, you know, just having that person or, or a team of people that you can reach out to and get that information was so important just to either validate what you were thinking or bring new information to you and just make sure that everybody stays as current as they can. And that common goal of keeping our patients and our staff as safe as we possibly can. I think it's been an incredible year. Um, all of us in healthcare, we know how much we have to be adaptable and flexible and think outside of the box, which Croy said so well earlier. I think this has been an even more credible year for people to adapt, become flexible, find workarounds that enable them to continue to practice, making it safe for themselves, making it safe for patients. And it's been quite a challenging year for, for me personally. Um, the majority of my work that I do with my clients is some on-site work, but predominantly over um, you know the internet. So the technology, of course, is, an, is a tremendous boom. Well, I wouldn't be able to do what I do, but to have thought that one day we'd be having our annual conferences and and meetings and doing things like we are now, and seeing how quickly the, uh, the New Jersey State Association uh, rallied and assembled to get everything online and bring everybody together so that we. All were, you know, going out there on our own. I think it was less, sorry, more than incredible. Um, and, and again, it shows up what we can do to keep moving. And uh, John, did you have any last minute thoughts there? Just real quickly, I, I, uh, John, just here in the uh, years providing uh, medication safety guidance, and the nurses and clinical staff in these facilities are. So wonderful. I have a saying, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And nurses and doctors, all of them, they'll reach out to me for guidance and, and, and my expertise. And I think it's a great team that we build in our ASCs, incorporating all of our specialties for the best betterment of the patient. I want to thank all of the uh, the panelists here. This has been a great opportunity. I wish I was uh, together with you in person, so uh, uh, we'd have more time to talk. Uh, but uh, thank you for your time and, uh, and again, your support of the New Jersey Association. Thank you, John. Hopefully next year. <laughs> Hopefully next year. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, John. Bye, everyone. We would like to thank our sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about their services, please visit ah-strategies.com, email them at info at ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. 
When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>